Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. So do you want to tell us what the Tox Talks are all about, Jake? The Tox Talks? The Tox Talks. Uh, for the listeners, I guess this is our new mini-series. Uh, we'll be discussing... Well, as many brands as we can, to be honest, and we'll try and explore some brands that aren't even available in Australia at the moment. So getting key opinion leaders on Light Neve to just try and get to the truth of the matter. It's not about my one's better than your one. It's just about how do we use these products most effectively, you know, depending on your personal choice as to why you decide to stock them. So I think that set the scene quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering the climate that we're in in Australia, where we do have more toxins coming into the market, you know, for the last you know, 15 or 20 years at least, we've been only able to get access to, to two toxins um, and there are more coming into the market now. So I think people are starting to explore what's available. And obviously there are some different techniques and nuances between a lot of these products, even though they work, you know, the same way. So it'd be good to just get a better understanding of, you know, what the truth is, you know, if you need to adjust techniques for different products and what your experiences are that someone that's obviously very, very experienced and, and hold a lot of knowledge um, with all the different options that are available on the marketplace. Have you <laughs> met David before or not? No. How are no. you? Nice to meet you. Yeah. E-meet you. <laughs> Virtual meeting. It's the way of the world these yeah. days. How did you guys meet? Uh, I met Neve at, I think it was non-surgical symposium, maybe. yeah. Two or three years ago. Well, right. it must have been three years ago because it hasn't been going for a couple. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty sure you did actually do a great talk on a similar topic. So, Possibly. I talk yeah. a lot on toxins. It's, yeah. you know, I'm like the performing monkey. I get, keep getting dragged up there to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think uh, we sort of connected over Instagram when, when the lockdowns were happening and we were just sharing yeah. some insights into what we thought was going on we'll leave yeah. it at that yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah so in these talks talks guys uh, we just need to declare these are non-sponsored uh these are neve's own opinions and when we get other key opinion leaders it will be their own opinions uh, we're going to talk off label um so disclaimer is you know this is just uh, a personal opinion we're not trying to train anyone or sort of promote any particular brand anything you wanted to add to that neve yeah, no, that's that's quite clear. It's it, it, I am a speaker and a KOL, and I do some research for Mertz, um, but yeah, this is purely my own opinions. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Well, before we get into, I guess, the nitty gritty of, of the Tox Talks, let's find out a little bit more about you. How's things down in Victoria? We know you're you're in Geelong, so just outside of uh, Melbourne by about an hour yeah. or so for any of our international listeners that want to orientate themselves yeah. to where you are. Um, yeah. But just give us a little bit of background about um, who you are, what you do down in Geelong, um, and how things have been going for you, I guess, post the, you know, all the, the madness of lockdowns and you know, all the you know, other factors that are making life very interesting and complicated and stressful for everyone <laughs> in Australia or around the world at the moment? Well, different. Yes. Um, so my background is um, I'm British, trained, as you can probably pick from my accent. I trained at Charing Cross in London, um, finished training in 1984, 
and went into surgical training in the UK, then emigrated to Australia along with many other people in 1988 and um, got into plastic surgery training here. So continued where I'd left off in the UK and um, qualified in 93 as a consultant. And um, I've always been a country girl, so didn't want to live in the big smoke. So Geelong had me. Um, so been here ever since. I was um, consultant surgeon plastic surgeon and in 90 sorry in 2004 started the cosmetic refinement clinic which is a non-surgical branch and it was interesting the reason before it was starting that was so that I had another string to my bow um you never know what life's going to throw at you in business and it was so in surgery it's you or nothing so it was always good to have something on the side and my experience with toxins goes back to 93 92 I think when I was at the Royal Children's and we were using toxins to treat babies with cerebral palsy mm -hmm. very successfully. So we treat them to weaken the muscles before we actually surgically released or did muscle tendon transfers. And so that was my experience. And I used to listen and see people like Mike Fagan coming in and speaking about their use in aesthetics, but never got really into it until the early 2000s. So 2000 and so for around about our, oh, the late 90s, early 2000s, I was using toxins, and 2004, I opened a clinic specifically for it um, and filler. So it's still, it's, it was still fairly early days. And I've, back in those days, I was using Botox because that was the only guy on the ground. Um, and then when Disport came out, I had a look at Disport, started using some of that and sort of got a feel for the slightly different nuances between them. And then in 2014, got experience with Zeman. Quickly, out of interest, you were talking about using it sort of therapeutically before surgery for um, cerebral palsy. What sort of, just out of interest, what sort of volumes of, of sort of toxin were you using? Um, oh, because we, we yeah. Big units, big, yeah, we were using, from memory, and it was a long time ago, I think we were using 50 to 100 units on some of these children. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. 50 to 100 units, do you mean per limb or? Per limb, into the leg. Okay, yeah. so it could be up to four or five maybe even 600 per, per child, per treatment? Oh, I only remember just the one vial that we opened for those yeah. little babies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And they're about six months to a year we were doing them. Yeah. Well, I wondered if that sort of leads into what we're going to talk about later. And, in fact, we're going to get you back for a second podcast to talk <laughs> yeah. about. Um, if she's not too traumatised from the first one. Well, she volunteered yesterday when <laughs> right. we spoke off air. So hopefully yeah. we can, we can <laughs> keep yeah. her on board. But to talk about resistance to toxins. And I think, you know, w when we do start using higher doses, that becomes more of an issue. So maybe we'll touch on that later. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. Now, also, you mentioned before that you're a trainer and a key opinion leader for Mertz, and you do that globally, Neve. So what does that mean? What are you doing? Who are you teaching? Where are you going? And how frequent is that? Well, at the moment, I'm not going anywhere apart from talking to the pop plants <laughs> in the study, <laughs> like everybody else. Um, but I was um, traveling maybe once uh, every four to six weeks internationally and teaching and training and sort of lecturing and a lot of hands-on training too. So that's always fun because you you go and you think, you, you know, you're the bee's knees and you know most of the stuff, but then you come and you go, oh, right, okay. So often you learn more than what you've actually taught sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Which is really, it's, it's, it's fantastic to be able to go and because often you're in an environment, especially in teaching and training, there may be two or three trainers and then you get to talk and you sort of, 
really learn and, and see what other people are doing. And it's quite, it's really very, very good training for us, I think. Yeah. So what was the sort of the pivotal moment for you? Um, you mentioned that you were working um, in, in a surgical capacity in the hospital, treating things like cerebral palsy and using these toxins. But what was the, the, the I guess, the transition or the, the moment where you thought to yourself, hey, um, I want to add another string to my bow. I can see a potential um, career or, you know, adding a, an element to my current practice with non-surgical treatment. So what was that like? What was that sort of moment? And what was your thought process as you sort of started to, I guess, explore, you know, the non-surgical pathway? Well, uh, there was, a, it was sort of like many factors that, that were happening at the time. I suppose one that I was aware from conferences and things that this is a growing trend um, in aesthetics and something that I hadn't as in my day been trained in the 80s, 90s, you didn't learn how to use fillers and toxins. It was all with the knife. Um, then um, at the time I was sort of doing facelifts and things and I started to question it myself. Is this what most women really want? You had the choice in back in those days of nothing or surgical and there wasn't much options in between and i know for a lot of women a lot of men too they don't want to go that full way they don't want to go and maintain and i think that's an awareness that people are not looking a lot there's a certain big group of people who are not looking for youth to look younger because as you get older and you get sort of 60, 70s, when you've got a young head on top of an aging body, it's quite a disconnect, <laughs> yes. right? It doesn't quite work. So a lot of people don't want to go down that line and they just want something to make themselves look better, feel better about themselves, improve their self-confidence, but not go that hard. And that's where non-surgical really has fitted in so well. And it's obviously a very quickly growing market. Um, so that was one thing. A colleague, a female colleague, um, her daughter got very sick and she ended up taking over a year off to look after that child. And there is no insurance will cover you for your child getting sick. So it cost her, she had to take a loan out to, to cover the expenses of her staff and the practice and it put her in quite a bit of financial stress. So she said to me, you know what, you've got to think smart, you're young, you're starting out, make sure you have another option that will keep something coming into the practice, at least cover the staff costs so that you can go back to it. So that was really the push that made me open the clinic. Um, and, yeah, it just took off. And for me, it was become, I mean, it was something new to learn and new techniques. And obviously those techniques were rapidly being explored and developed at that time too. So it was fast, it was um, it was very interesting and stimulating academically. Yeah. Um, just from a, from a business perspective, because that, that's my background and I guess primary interest of whilst being in this industry is, you know, starting to see professionals like yourself start to recognise that, you know, there is utility and, you know, in fact, a really good idea to set up passive, well, semi-passive forms of income where you have a business where you're able to have potentially other people injecting for you that you oversee and make sure that things are being done to the standard that you want. But, you know, being in an operating theatre all day, you know, it's, I can imagine I haven't done it, but I've spoken to plenty of plastic surgeons like yourself. You know, it, it is a big commitment. It is, it is, it is full on. Um, and I think that it's interesting seeing, as I said, professionals starting to look at the non-surgical option, you know, looking at things more laterally and setting up um, businesses that are allow them to, you know, I guess, set up for themselves like a future that is beyond what they do in the operating theatre. Sure. And, you know, you have, um, and also patients are wanting that extra option yes. too. That they're aware of it and they want, you know, you can do face, if you can do blepharoplasties and everything else, but they they do want 
a little bit of something else along. The, so it, it's an adjunct. It, it helps what you're doing surgically. And also from um, a reconstructed point of view, there's a lot like kids who have got small jaws who, you know, you can do a lot now using non-surgical techniques where, again, from a reconstructed point of view, we were only able to do it surgically. Now, you know, I've got kids with small jaws and I can just put filler in on their chin, filler around the maxilla, and the dentists do the orthodontics and we get them there and they look great and they haven't had to have the major surgery. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, and scar revisions, post-acne, there's a lot of things we can do with our non-surgical toolkit. I'm interested. You, you mentioned you started with obviously uh, the original toxin that was available, you know, in the late nineties, and then you tried another couple of brands. What, what was your early experience when you, when you were learning yourself with toxins? Cause I remember we had Kath Porter on quite a number of podcasts ago and, and she said that, you know, the, the, the goal was just freeze everything that you could see. And, you know, your patient would come back for a review and, and the doctor say, yes, you look, you look frozen. That's awesome. But obviously things have evolved since then. So what, what yeah. are your insights when you started? I was never into the frozen look. I have to say, I used to think that was sort of like partly why for me, facelift surgery didn't work for everybody because mm. you could see it. It just didn't look right. So for always from the start for me, um, and I think I was a bit out of left field on this, was a bit of a minimalist just to make people look better but not look as if they've been into to me for a treatment. And yes. that was my sort of differentiator from the crowd, I think, a little bit too. But certainly when we started learning, and that still happens a lot, is because where do you start? And it's about an anatomy that's on a piece of paper or in a book that's like, and join the dots, you know, <laughs> join, here, 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 which is completely not real. All right. We know everybody's muscles, everybody's face is very different. So, and that's one of the challenges we have when we're teachers is to try and teach that, hang on a minute. Yeah. That's what the textbook says. Now, well, let's start again and let's see what this patient has, what's different because nobody has a textbook except Barbie, right? <laughs> so that's not who we're treating. We're treating normal people who have got considerable asymmetries. And when you treat one muscle is going to have an effect on another and an effect on another. So it's really trying to get the people to learn that differential. And it's very hard because, you know, they're still sitting here with this needle going, <laughs> where the hell do I shove this stuff and how, you know, <laughs> it's and not, it's not a vaccine. It's not just bang, hit, wallop, it's done. Yeah. So there's an art, there really is. And there's a steep learning curve, you know, when you watch injectors, and you watch experienced injectors like yourself, Jack. You watch everybody injects slightly differently, even yeah. with toxins. We all have different techniques, which is interesting because we all went and did that course initially where you went, you know, the five dots into the glabella and da, 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 along the forehead, right? And then we've evolved as individuals. Yeah. When we've worked out for ourselves, well, that doesn't quite work and this is it. So we've all looked and learn from our own complications, right, where you've stuffed up and we all stuff up numerous times. Well, some of us more than others maybe. But, you know, <laughs> you, you learn from those errors and you think, right, I'm not doing that again or why did it happen? And then you look at individual anatomy and you look at exactly where you're placing the needle, what dilutions you're using, how you work it. And those are the individual nuances that a lot of us have learned and we've got to try now hand on so that people, other people don't go onto that learning curve that we were on or can get ahead a bit quicker in the game. 
Yeah, you, you touched on a really interesting point, and and I have exactly the same experience. When you're teaching new injectors, you know you've got to start somewhere, and and yeah. and teaching some black and white protocols is kind of how people want to learn. Although you've just said quite clearly that that's not really reality. So, as you've learned as a trainer, as you've gone on, I think you've been training with Mertz for a while now. Like, how do you teach people to you know sort of assess a face when they're new and they don't have any concept of of difference they just want to learn that five point clubella so how do you go about that well i start my thing is okay so look at somebody's face look at when you and sometimes like especially with covid because we're doing rapid antigen tests out in the car park so i'm in and out of the front door all the time Mm. and it's interesting so when i go and talk to them and they're sitting in the car and waiting for the results of the rapid antigen I watched how their face moves <laughs> and the expressions and the way they talk and their communication, their nonverbal communication. That's my starting point. Do they look grumpy? Do they look sad? Do they look tired? Do they look like an old bitch? You know, it's... <laughs> yeah. Resting bitch <laughs> you know, face. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> RBF. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's what my first assessment is. All right. And that helps to guide where I'm going to place my toxin. And that's what I start. And I also have a very minimalist approach. So people who are have never had it before, which is a good starting point for beginners, I say what you say is I'm going to start with this minimal dose because a lot of people are really nervous and still nervous about looking like a fruitcake, you know, frozen mm-hmm. without expression. And remember, at the moment we're only expressing from from here up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you, it's even more important to retain communication. Neve was talking, uh, pointing to her nose, by the way, for people who can't oh, sorry, see yes. us. Yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the non-YouTube watchers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's it's so communication and what they're communicating with their face is important. So you can say to a beginner, well, just and you explain to your patients, we'll just start on a minimal dose, three-point glabella, so we retain some movement, and then you get them back in two weeks, and you can give a bit more. And sort of warning things to look out for, like anatomically to avoid injecting around the superorbital foramen because you're going to risk high risk of ptosis, to look for spocking in advance. So get them all to just immobilize the glabella with your fingers and get the patient to raise their eyebrows. And if they do that sort of Mephisto spiky eyebrow thing, you anticipate it and put half a unit above each spike. And that's where I start. Perfect. And and then when we progress, then we progress to upper crows. I don't do lower crows because that is, again, you give this weird smile. It's not communicating properly. They look disingenuous, especially when you're wearing masks. So upper crows. And then we'll progress on to foreheads and where the dangers are with foreheads. And, you know, you don't want to drop the brow. You have to, you know, you sort of do a progressive thing. So they come with me with a patient and we'll just do the glabella on that patient. And the person who's been doing glabellas for a while, they'll do the forehead or whatever. So we gradually increase it. What I absolutely love is that even though we're, you know, training for different companies and I've never sort of seen you inject, it sounds like we're doing very, very, very similar things. So it reassures me <laughs> yeah. that I'm doing something yeah. doing something right. Yeah. Uh, Neva, I wanted to ask you, and this is a bit of a loaded question, so, um, well, we'll see. Um, <laughs> we've, we've spoken about this, well, I've spoken about it many times before on the podcast as someone that's not medical, who's owned businesses and watched hundreds of injectors, maybe even more than that, over the years. And what strikes me is that, you know, this particular subspecialty, even though we can't call it a specialty, I guess, I don't know, there's some rules around that. So let's just, for the sake of it, this very unique um, area of medicine that has sort of evolved over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, um, but I guess mo- mo- most prompt, most dramatically over the last 10 years, really, yeah. when you think about the advancements and the products that are coming onto the market. 
is that this is a hybrid between medicine and art. Um, and so as a trainer, when you're talking to new trainers, you're sort of getting to know them and their skills. Are there people that you think, it doesn't matter how much I'm going to train you, you just don't get it. You don't have an artistic eye. And how do you sort of cope with those people or what's your sort of process for, you know, maybe letting them know that, you know, potentially this isn't for them or do you feel that, you know, that everyone is capable of it with enough training is what I'm trying to say. Neve doesn't uh, suffer fools. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. I'm fairly blunt. Yeah. Um, I think yeah, there's absolutely no doubt there are people that you get in there and you go, oh, you know, <laughs> um, and there are people who are doing it um, as an income scratch. Yeah. An extra income stream, especially in a lot of now GP practices, mm, a lot yeah. of nurses who are absolutely over the hospitals, and I don't blame them, who are going and looking at as another option to make money. And yet, this, you're right. There are some people just don't have that aesthetic eye. And it's the same. I mean, that was the whole thing with plastic surgery too. You know, you can slice and dice till the cows come home, but you have to be able to assess somebody and, and just have that stand back and sort of, I mean, Jake and I, we can scan a face and instantly pick so to us. And it's interesting because injectors scan differently and have different outcomes in your own head too. So there's a lot of psyche goes into this psychology. But there are some people who just don't get it. Yeah. And for them, I really try, I will say to them quite, oh, look, I don't think you're ready for fillers yet because I think it's fillers when they really get into trouble. Mm. And I try and guide them to a very minimalist approach with toxins just yeah. to keep it to the, you know, glabella. Um, and I don't push going down the nuances line. I yeah. think, and, and I am, I'm fair, as I said, this is where I come on stuff because I am fairly blunt. <laughs> and I'll say, I really think you need to stand back. Maybe you need to do an art course. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question. You know, do you think yeah. there's utility in someone going and taking, um, you know, some sort of, you know, vocational sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, going and studying something artistic, understanding proportions, symmetry, form, line, shape, all those sorts of things. Do you think that that's potentially a fallback for people that just seem to be struggling or, or do you think that's a waste of time potentially? Potentially, I think it's a waste of time. Okay. Mm. I think if they were, if honestly, if they've wanted to do that, they would have done it years ago. Okay. They would have had that artistic bent. They would have known it. They would have gone into it. The group that we're talking about, the people who are just after the dollars, right? They're looking for money only. Yeah. They don't. And I think a lot of them, they're just not, they're not going to waste their time doing that. They just want to go bang, bang, bang. They see it as a quick, easy fix. And it's, it's about explaining, well, hang on a minute. It, it isn't a quick, easy fix. You need to do that training. There are some who will take it on board, and, yes, there's a few that possibly will do the artistic side of it. But I think a lot of people in these busy days, they're not going to spend the time. Yeah. If they've either got it or they haven't innately, in my book. Yeah, yeah. I find people struggle, you know, Neve mentioned before, it's, it's the assessment and understanding, well, if you get so-and-so units in your glabella, why doesn't that work for me? Or, oh, my forehead should be the same because Neve said we do X amount of units in that forehead. And I think that only comes with the experience. So, <laughs> you know. And that's the thing. We've got to find a way to get that learning curve a little bit quicker. And yeah. maybe that there's need. There's a lot more need, I think, for apprenticeships and bringing on people and having having training protocols because that it doesn't exist. We yeah. don't, like in surgery, plastic surgery, we have to do, you know, X number of years. We have to have passed anatomy, physiology, and all the, um, there's a whole load more to it, is it, and ethics and everything else that's thrown in the mix too. Then you go on and then you actually do your practical stuff and you learn your skills. 
and then you have to pass exams, which are horrendous. Yeah, they're they're really tough. Um, the the practical, the clinical assessments that go on. We don't have, and then you get your ticket, and you're a specialist plastic surgeon. Now we don't have that in aesthetics. Um, in aesthetic medicine at all. I mean, there's every man and his dog, me included, <laughs> trying to train to what I think is the best training standard I can give. But there is no overall guidelines as to what we should do. It really can be the Wild West. And unfortunately, the bottom end is the patient who can get called out. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to wheel us to the talk of the yes. day, which is the Tox Talks. Uh, and we're going to focus on a brand called Xiomin, or in some yeah. countries, it's known as Bocator, which is interesting in itself. So first of all, why do they do that, Neve? Why do they call these things differently in different countries? Do you such know? weird names too. Yeah. <laughs> Have they done market research and decided Xiomin sounds a bit scary? Or <laughs> I, think it's, I think it is marketing. I think yeah. it's purely marketing. Right. And, you know, when you get marketers mixed up with medicine, oh, it can go right sometimes but yeah it is purely marketing uh, and to be clear they're the same product um absolutely i believe they come in a 50 or 100 unit vial is that correct that's correct and i think they also that's why the americans have said when that when a company submits a drug they and this is fda they have to have a generic name so yes. we have incobotulinum toxin or abobotulinum toxin or probobotulinum toxin or, you know, all these great big mouthfuls that we have to try and remember. Um, this is, is, is so that we have some sort of standardization. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And, you know, th that's no different to Botox. It's known as Vistabel or Vistabex and Disport's yeah. known as Azalur. So this is not unique to, to Mertz. Just they to sound like that. names that Kanye West would call his next child. Maybe he should be asked. Yeah, be, next one will be called, what was it? Bocatour West. I reckon that could be yeah. the name of his next kid. Maybe. Or, or a dog. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Hey, Bocatour, come yeah. here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, why don't you sort of give us, I, I guess, the, the, the elevator pitch for Xiaomi. Like, what is it? What does it look like? How do you make it? Uh, you know, how do you Key dilute it? Difference. Well, yeah, and, and, I, and we'll come on to the differences as yeah. well with the other brands. Yeah. Okay. So, well, basically, it's like every other brand. It's the botulinum toxin from the, the bug that causes botulism, right? So, they all originated from the bug. And what they do is got to clean out as much as they can to, to get the bit that we want to inject into somebody, right? So, and they're all from the same buck. They're all from, you know, the whole strain. Well, most, all the ones that we have anyway, yeah. definitely are. Um, so, that, so that's why they work the same. They last the same. Their actions are the same. The differential comes in because they all manufacture slightly differently. Mm -hmm. Now, that is thought to give us slight nuances in behaviour. But to be honest, the... The hard evidence of differences in behaviour is not there, that we don't have good solid data. We've got, you know, people like you and me saying, well, I think, mm -hmm. my gut feeling is. But do we have hard evidence? No. So one of the big things is that's talked about is spread, right, and precision. You hear you know, at the moment everybody's saying, oh, this, I'm hearing all these new products. They're all precise. Define precision for me. Yeah. And how do you control it? Precision is in clinical terms, is it's, it stays where you put it, right? So how do we change that? You in, you affect that with just how deep you inject. You dilute it. How much do you dilute it? Does the patient go and, and run afterwards or do they sit quietly? There are so many variations. And how do you measure it? You can only measure it by complication rates, which, to be honest, they're all the same. Yeah. There's been no difference in complication rates between any of the toxins, right? Um, 
spread has been measured with anhydronic halos with injecting into the forehead and there was a difference there but does that relate exactly to what we're doing with injecting muscles there's a big there's a big difference there so do you mean you know it's a bit like the sweat test where you know the sweat test on the forehead so there was a difference between disport and botox and zeomin on the sweat test Sorry for Philistines like me. Do you just want to explain, the people that are non-medical that might be listening, can you explain what the sweat test is? Go on, Neil, so, go for it. Okay, so basically uh, a botulinum toxin blocks the message going from a nerve yep. to a muscle. It also blocks the message going from a nerve to a sweat gland mm-hmm. or to other glands like salivary glands too. So it blocks that message getting across. So if you're going to block sweat glands, obviously you're going to have no sweating. Right. which is great. People who really, really sweat like in their armpits and it just runs down their sides, mm-hmm. fabulous for that. But also it's something that we can see if the drug works properly is by injecting in the forehead and just putting starch on and then staining the starch with iodine and see is there sweat or not sweat. It's quite a nice little test there. Right. My, my slight criticism of that paper, I have read it, is that they're doing a, a sweat test to measure diffusion, yet they're not injecting into the muscle, which is what we normally do yeah, exactly. cosmetically. So, so I'm saying it's it's not truly relevant. I mean, there've been experiments, and I can't remember who did, whose name's on the paper, of injecting um, gastronemius in mice mm. and seeing whether it spreads to the other muscles, also into the interosseous of some very brave volunteers in their feet and see if it spread across to the other small muscles. And no, there wasn't. And there was no difference between drugs. But it, it, these are very, it's very hard. When we're talking about, and it, it comes down to critically in the forehead, because the forehead is part of the SMAS muscle. Now, for those who are non-medical, the SMAS, so if you imagine in the face, you've got skin, you've got a bit of sort of sheet of fat, which is a bit of padding, and then you have a sheet of muscle and fibre, and then underneath that you have little muscles and then you have bone, right? So we're trying to weaken areas of all those muscles to balance up the face and and reduce movement where we don't want so much movement. And where this message transmission occurs is what we call a a motor end plate, um, and they are in the little small directional muscles that are all clumped together in the middle of the muscle. But on big flat muscle in that sheet, that fibrous muscular sheet, they're scattered, mm. right? So they're just dotted evenly right throughout. So if you inject um, your toxin and you just, you know, because people don't particularly like needles, me included, <laughs> and you do five points across the forehead, then if it's going to work. It's got to get spread across to all those little motor end plates, right, where the message transmits. Yep. If it's very precise, it's not going to spread. So that's one of the things that we often talk about is where we pick up the nuances between the different drugs mm-hmm. and so the different preparations. So some clinically appear to spread better than others in yep. the muscle, and forehead is where you really pick it. And just to sort of um, go back to the preparation, uh, am I right in saying, Xiaomin, it almost looks like little white crystals versus, say, another brand which doesn't look crystalline. So why does that happen? What's the difference in the manufacturing? It's the difference in preparation. So it goes, um, and I'll remember all the companies, it's it's squeaky private, right? Yes. We get told what they want us to hear, not (laughs) exactly what's happening. So just remember that in mind, okay? So their preparations, um, I mean, everybody gets the toxin out of the bacteria pretty much similarly. And what they do with it to clean it up varies. So whether it's 
uh, chromatography and how many passes of chromatography, which gets out all those extra bits and pieces that you don't want. What's mixed in the vial, so albumin, saline are the commonest ones, um, some sucrose, you can have um, polysorbate, all these little bits and pieces that go in to stop it sticking to the glass so you can get it out. Mm-hmm. And then whether they're freeze dries or vacuum dries, well, it's always a, com- it's a combination of both anyway, but it's how much of each, and that's what gives you the preparation, all yeah. right? So for Zeman, they ran into problems when they first did it because, like, all of us, me included, have been trained by Allegan how to dilute. Yeah. So we used to inject, you know, you t- for me, I was taught two mil dilution, but you can have a two and a half mil dilution. It doesn't matter. It's how many units you inject is the key thing. Um, and we used to inject through the cap and swirl, sorry, take the cap off and then inject and swirl it, right? The trouble is with Xeomin, especially with the transport, a lot of the crystals, as you say, the powder ended up in the cap. Yeah. So if you did that, you took the cap off, you threw away about 20% into the air. It, it, right. I think that was actually more common than people realise. We, we were yeah. talking about yeah. that the other day, weren't we? Yeah. 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 You have to inject through the cap and then swirl and invert it and, and get it out of the cap. I mean, yeah. they, they sort of that, that was one of the early problems with ZMN, which, which caused issues. And I think also that, um, and we really picked up the problems in the forehead, and I think one of the things – Anecdotally, clinically, is there is a difference in precision as well and how you spread it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's one of the challenges for a lot of um, providers or injectors out there is that, especially in Australia, where, you know, Botox was the only showing yeah. game, show, like only product in, in the market for a very long time. And people became very accustomed to, as you said, dilutions and injecting techniques. And now, all the other products that have come onto the market, particularly now with Xeomin that has some unusual nuances about it, people are always comparing it to Botox and what they need to do to get an equivalent dose to Botox. And it seems to be a little bit of a mental hurdle or par- you know, potentially it could also give people the impression that it's not as good as Botox because you need to inject make more units or you need to use a slightly different dilution and people are sort of always comparing it. Do you think that that's, you know, a, a real issue and do you think it's just a, a process of re-educating people into thinking about it as each product on its own individual merits rather than comparing it to like the gold standard or, the, you know, the first, the, 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 the dominant brand in the marketplace? Look, there's no problem comparing it to, to the Allegan Botox because it's a good product, right? Yeah, of course. It's a very, very good product. It's been around for a long time and it's fabulous, but as you said, there are nuances with the new ones coming on. And the, 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 there is a bit of a old wives tale about potency and, and the equivalence with, with Botox and, and Zeman. So it started, unfortunately, because there was a paper come out, Hunt and Clark paper back in oh, 2009, I think it was, where they got the whole, they, and all companies do this, right? When they know there's something coming out around the corner, they try and spike somehow get hold of a vial and test it, right, and see what the hell are we going to have to compete against. I mean, to be honest, it's such a growing market. They don't have to compete, but um, they they see what's coming. So um, they got a – Allegan got a vial of Zemin and they put it on the Allegan assays. Now, the assays are different, and they have to be different because they're manufactured differently. So the way you prepare and and, um, get it – and what happened was – that they ended up with 20% um, lower, what appeared to be a 20% lower potency compared to what they normally would expect to see in with the Allegan products. Well, they didn't put one, they didn't put both of them and test them against each other at the same time. Mm. They only took the Zeman and they used the wrong assay and excipients to do it that you wouldn't normally do. So that was that was problem number one. And then 
So following that, Maurice Carpe did a study where they looked at treating a globella and they put, um, they just took, based on that, they said, well, okay, let's just put 30 units on one side and, and one patient and 20 units on another and see. And they were both the same. Now, the conclusion was, well, well 20 units, 30 units, they're both as good, but it doesn't say one is better or that you need more than the other, mm. all right, because they both worked. And so this was questioned, and then Wolf Prager, he turned it around and just switched the doses around. So he had 30 of Botox to 20 CMN, and the outcomes are exactly the same. Mm. And so there's a lot of studies. There's a fantastic one by Michael Kane, oh, yeah. who did, did a lot of the Botox work, and he did a, ran, a really good randomized uh, double-blind study on Botox versus Zeman um, head-to-head on glabellus, and there was no difference, and it was a big study. And it was really well done. So that sort of says if it's if you there's probably differences in technique and nuance, but yep. really basically the potency is one to one mix. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people I think also got a bit caught out with the forehead because I think clinically there is a different precision. You have to inject and think I have to get the drug where those motor end plates are. Mm. And with a precise drug, you have to be precise on that. So either you've got to spread it more, which you can increase your dilution, or you do a few more injection points. Okay, so I just wanted to touch back to your dilution. So in a 100-unit vial, you're doing two and a half mils of saline, did you say? That's okay. So I actually do two because that's how I was trained. And, you know, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But in fact, the Mertz recommendation are two and a half mills okay so to be honest it doesn't matter it's the number of units getting to where they're needed is what the important thing is yeah so not not that we want to compare drugs because we've said very clearly they're just different manufactured different different processes etc but that does make it nice and easy if you've if you've learned on botox and it's basically the same thing in terms of dilution and preparation and that's what i tell people when they're converting just just do exactly the same as you do with your Botox. Okay. Yeah. But, but then you did mention about potency and diffusion and, you know, preciseness. So where does it differ? Like, w- w- what would you say? I think I would do, so what I do is when I inject, say, foreheads, for me, I inject, I increase the dilation. I make sure I'm actually injecting in the muscle, not in the subcutis. I've yes. never quite worked out why you would inject superficially unless you want to reduce the dose. So I just half the dose if I'm going to do that, and it's still injected in the muscle. Yeah. So you just do a little pinch and you get your needle into the muscle. Um, the and I I do I take up then double the amount that's in my syringe with saline, and mm-hmm. I increase the dilution. So I just do a double dilution when I'm doing the forehead. So I get that nice diffuse spread. Again, I'm a very low doser. I don't like high doses. So most patients will get um, some will only get two three units in the forehead. Some will get five. I've got the odd one, obviously, who needs higher dosing, 10 but, or 12 units. But that's the odd one. Most yeah. are around the five-unit mark for a full forehead. Right. And it lasts well. And so do you have any um, challenges with longevity, with, I guess, more conservative doses? And how do you prepare your patients for that? Because I'm assuming they may have gone, not all of them, I'm sure many patients have been with you for their lifetime and they're your one and only injector. But for many people that move around and potentially come and see yourself, um, how do you sort of have that conversation with them in terms of changing their expectations? Yeah, well, first of all, about um, that's about the longevity. So I'd heard all these rumours when I was looking and seeing because I was very keen on something that um, was a cleaner drug 
a newer technology. I was just because I'm always looking at newer, better things. Um, and I'd heard this. I'd been told, you know, it just doesn't last as long. So I actually then did a study in my rooms and my stuff. So there were eight of us, right? One of the nurses dropped the drugs, identical syringes, everything else, same dilution, right? I didn't know what I was injecting. I mean, I knew I was injecting much lime toxin, <laughs> but I didn't know which was getting in which side oh, of the face. It's like the Pepsi challenge. And marked it. Yeah, so we did a challenge within the <laughs> clinic. Nobody knew apart from this one nurse, right? And it, it was marked. The charts were locked away. Nobody saw it. At about day three, day four, at least half of us looked like we'd had a stroke. So, <laughs> <laughs> so obviously there was a difference in onset between the two drugs. And Z, and I sort of tweaked that Zemo seemed to be cutting in a few days earlier. But apart from that, and then we photographed them, we photographed all of us, and they, they eased off at exactly the same time. So there was no difference between the size of the face and longevity at all. And I've also done a really nice documented of one of the Mertz reps interesting who was actually getting hammered about this and questioning and being into question it herself so we double blinded her and i did half in one side half in the other and we photographed it right the way through and it was exactly the same both sides and then with patients because um i i, I mean i start the conversation and say look i might not be your cup of tea we don't or this is my philosophy. I like people still to move and to look very natural. And for aging patients, as you know, you get more and more wrinkly in the forehead because that forehead muscle, the frontalis, is having to do double time, work harder to keep your eyebrow up yeah. and keep the skin off your eyelashes so you can see. Otherwise, you walk around like this forever. So if you weaken that, obviously, it's just all going to come crashing down very easily. And you walk a very, very fine line to take the edge off those lines. So for a lot of patients... We can inject the glabella every three, four, six months, whatever it is that they personally need. And then intermittently, I'll just do a very, what I call a light sprinkle, so it'll be half unit injections, hyperdilute in their forehead. And they'll come in every six to eight weeks for that. Now, and Xeomin, because it doesn't have the immunoresistance um, profile, patients can have it every six to eight weeks. It's on label for that. So you can actually do that and you can just really keep it light, light dose. And it only costs them about $50 or whatever just to have their forehead kept up with a very, very low dose sprinkle. It's a conversation you have with your patients. Yeah. So a lot of, you know, I say, look, if you increase the dose, sure, you're going to get a longer outcome. It lasts longer. The higher the dose, the longer it lasts, but the higher the whack. So in foreheads especially, you know, apart from the shiny frozen forehead, which most don't want anymore, um, there's the risk of dropping the brow. Absolutely. Now, we didn't mention um, the on-label sort of areas that, you, you know, uh, Xeomin is licensed for. Am I right in saying it's all three upper face muscles? Yeah. yeah. So glabella, frontalis, crow's feet. Yeah. And, and what does that mean on and off-label? A lot of patients probably wouldn't know and traditionally you know we treat other things on the face but what does it mean from a from a, I guess it, a brand perspective so basically when you submit a drug to the authority in Australia being the TGA US being the FDA um, you have to prove and give evidence that the drug works for that particular indication in that area so that, that they will approve it then say yep yeah, okay so it works here and we know it works. And so, yes, you can have the tick 
you're allowed to prescribe it as a doctor to be used in that area for that indication. Mm -hmm. Now, as doctors, we're also allowed to use discretion if we think a drug is going to work in another area or for another indication based on what we know, but the patient has to be informed that there is an unknown element there and a risk, and that's what we do as doctors. And then if you get it wrong, you get hauled over the coals. So, um, <laughs> but that's, that's, so that's off label is when we're using discretion and using it in other areas that's not approved and not a proven working thing. Um, an approved event is on label. It's actually an important point because a, lo- a lot of our listeners are new injectors or, or injectors with uh, prescribing doctors. And I'm not entirely sure if that conversation is always had with the patient. And, you know, if you're a, not a prescriber yourself and you're doing off-label treatments. I think that should be an explicit uh, mm. conversation in your scripting process or consult with your doctor Abs- involved. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, you know, everything goes well, it's fine. But as soon as there's complications or problems, you can be really for the high jump. Yeah. yeah. I think the technical term is when the shit hits the fan, Neve. I think I think, <laughs> yeah, I think, yeah, I think, that, right. I think that's the uh, the appropriate term. Um, quick question. In terms of um, just from curiosity, we always call it frontalis glabella crow's feet what's <laughs> what's the technical t- is it apicularis oculi oculi yes okay so we just say crow's feet because that's too hard to say <laughs> yeah. right i was just yeah. wondering why we're yeah. so we're so formal with the other parts of the face and then crow's feet yeah it's yeah. <laughs> it's true yeah. it's true now yeah. what, one of the um i guess usps or unique selling points of xeomin as a product i remember seeing this when i went to imcas back in 2000 and 10, 10 yeah a long time ago when that when it was first come out in Europe, and it's taken all this time to get here. But one of the USPs was it, it doesn't have, and the doctors correct me if I'm wrong, like a protein attached to it, which means that it doesn't need to be refrigerated and, and start degrading um, like the other toxins do if you don't keep them refrigerated. Now, I'm curious to get your sort of thoughts on that, Neve, in terms of you know how true is that and what benefits um, do you find as a practitioner um, with that sort of you know feature that this product has? Okay, well, first of all, about storage and stability. So I don't think it's it's so much the proteins that affect right. the storage. I think it's them, their actual manufacturing process and part of that sort of secret squirrely stuff that mm-hmm. they don't tell what's all the <laughs> Secret herbs and spices, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the way you stir the cauldron. Yeah. But <laughs> but the, the stability is incredibly stable. So it will last four years wow. at room temperature. In the box, right? You can just chuck it in the back of the cupboard. You don't need to keep it in the fridge. It doesn't need to come in a cold chain. It just comes in a cardboard box, you know, and gets delivered to your doorstep like that. Which, to be honest, I came on stuff one year when I had a fridge full of Botox and it was the summer holidays and we were shut down. And guess what? There was a power cut. Uh, always the way. So all that Botox that was sitting in the fridge had to be chucked because it couldn't, you didn't know what how stable it was going to be. So oh, you can't yeah. use it on patients. Right. So from that point of view, in a hot country, it's fantastic. Secondly, um, and I'm not supposed to say this, but I know the data, when it's reconstituted and put in the fridge, it actually lasts for a year. But it's not sterile, okay? Yes. So obviously it's not sterile. So you've got to worry about the bugs that are in there, but it's, but it's certainly stable. So you can put it in the fridge and reconstitute it and it's still stable and still as active a year later. 
Yeah, I yeah. think I think anecdotally, all of the brands will tell you you must use it within twenty four hours. But I think we know in practice that that's not necessarily true. Of course, it's the best practice to do. You know, make it and use it on a prescribed patient. But you know, you, you yeah. own clinics yeah. and, and you've got multi injectors yep. and multi patients. Yep. It doesn't always work that way. No, it no. doesn't. No, absolutely. I can just imagine that the um, Mertz reps going, "Look, you should just buy a thousand of these bottles because it's going to last <laughs> you four years. It's never going to go off. Just buy it now. Forget about it. Put it in the cupboard." <laughs> Sure, I do. <laughs> yeah. so, so anyway, that's that's the longevity and stability side. Yeah. Then you asked me about um, the proteins. Yes. Now the proteins. So remember, this has come from a bacterium, yep. a really nasty, nasty cabbage. In fact, it's been new. It's a disport actually was developed from um, in the UK from Porton Down because they were looking at it as a bioweapon. Yeah. Oh, right? Not to develop from the UK. They would never do that. But, you know, looking at what <laughs> might come their way. Right. right? Yes. So it's, um, that's where it came from. It's so potent. It's so nasty. All right. Obviously, it's refined down. But that's where Disport and Ibsen took it from, from Porton Down. So we have to be aware of that. Now, in nature, you don't, you obviously don't inject yourself in nature when you get botulism. You eat it. And these, the bacteria developed with, so the nasty bit that does the damage is inside a cap of proteins. And those proteins stop it being destroyed when you eat it by the acids in your tongue, right? So that it will go through. And then another one of those proteins actually helps it squeeze through the linings of your gut. There's a, there's a receptor, e and receptor, which it attaches to, and it sort of opens it up and lets you toxin squeeze through and it gets into the bloodstream, travels around and just ultimately paralyzes you and kills you because you can't breathe. So that's how it works in nature. Um, but we're injecting it. So the only bit we need is the nitty gritty bit in the middle that weakens the muscle. But the problem is, and this is, brings us onto the resistance thing, we are genetically programmed all right. And we know that from all sorts of infections from like, it could have been my great, great, great grandfather who was fighting in the first world war, got exposed to botulism and survived. And his memory is that, hang on a minute, if we ever see this again or anything like this again, sort of, and recognize these proteins, we're going to be able to go in and knock it on the head. Right. Mm. So we have that genetic programming to certain proteins and those proteins that we have memory for are things the flagellins, which are the little sort of motility wavy things on the end of a bacterium and they're on botulism. Bacterial cell wall proteins, in, uh, inactivated DNA, um, all sorts of things, as well as some of those proteins in that cap, all right, because they're common to other things. So we are genetically programmed that when we see it, we go, oh, shit, right, we've got to respond. Now, that is what is coming in so that that, primes your immune system now the actual toxin itself the nasty bit because if you were exposed to that you died so you never really transferred that bit on so as a memory so that is always going to slip through the net but what we do when we're having those extra bits of protein that come in it's like it's recognized your immune system has a memory thing and it goes hang on a minute we've seen this before when the two come together you're going to have a resistance to it, but you're also going to start to go, well, what's this other little fella here? We better get some antibodies to that as well. So that's where it becomes, it's like a vaccination. It doesn't, in little doses, like your glabella, it's not, a, it's not an issue, right? Because it's so small, the dosages, especially, you know, and it's, it's about how it builds over lifetime. But now 
we're getting into bigger doses. We know it happens in therapeutics. People have been treated with cerebral palsy, strokes, having had serious pain, all those sort of issues. Um, there is a real well-known problem of immune resistance. Patients, it doesn't work anymore because they, they've been vaccinated against it, basically, all right? Or it can only partially work. And, I mean, Allegan knew about it. Um, Ibsen knew about it. Both of them cleaned up their products and reduced the amount of this extra protein that's in there. But then the newer generation, which is Zeman, has really cleaned it right down and got rid of all those extra proteins. So we don't prime or we're not triggering our immune system memories from other things. So that's why we don't see. But tiny doses, it's not very often, but it's big doses over a long time is where the issues occur. So if you think about when you're dealing with like um, now, say, because I treat faces globally, tend to, I look at their emotions and I'll treat the lower face off-label, obviously, masters off-label, upper face. Or if I'm doing hyperhidrosis, it's 100 units. If I'm doing most faces, it'd be about 50 units plus. You're getting into high doses. Those are therapeutic levels. And we have to look to the therapeutic literature because our immune system doesn't say, well, you injected me because you have pain as opposed to I, you injected me because you've got, you know, a grumpy looking face. It doesn't differentiate between that. It's going to respond to the dose, how often and how long you've been treated. So I think now for me that becomes very important when we're looking at long-term treatments of bigger dosing, patients' lifetime accumulation of toxin, what's their risk? Because quite a few of our patients at the end of the day are going to end up needing therapeutic toxin. I have a lot of patients I treat for migraine, for pain, and their therapeutic indications, and they need their toxin because it works for them. And it's a very low-risk procedure. Well, if you had a stroke, you really want it to work, or you've got bladder dystonia, you really want it to work. So I think for when we're doing bigger doses, long-term patients repeated, then we have to really think about minimizing that risk. I mean, there are other things you can do. You don't do boosters. You only you space it out a minimum of three months together. Keep your dosing low. There are other things you can do, but we have to start thinking that why. We have to put our medical hats on when we're treating our patients. That's a good summary of sort of the theory, but uh, a lot of our listeners want to know the evidence. So I think you did say right at the start, you know, that's a unique selling point, but it's not necessarily translatable to, to um, aesthetic medicine. But where, where, what do we mean by a high dose and a low dose? And, you know, what is the rate of resistance that, that we, well, published rate that we know of? Okay, so it depends what you look at. And that's interesting because the studies that, were done in aesthetics, the big numbers, um, were done on FDA submission trials. So they were all less than a year Yes. on Globel only. Well, I can bet you bottom dock, I'm never going to see it in those patients either, right? Mm. Um, it's going to be 0.02 or whatever percent. But if you are doing what I'm doing a lot of patients, and I think to me the threshold is probably around 50 units when you're looking at the um, the therapeutics literature, that's when we start to see it. Now, it's probably only about one, maybe 2% you're going to see even those higher dosings. But it's enough if those patients need, are going to need toxin as number one choice of treatment for a medical condition down the track and it's not available to them or it's yeah. not going to work very well. Um, I have a few patients that have been, and it's subtle, it starts with just, you start to see they need it a little bit more often and so more and more dosing. And you, you ask them, you sort of get a, 
if you're aware of it, you start to get a feel for it. Well, they may be getting a little bit resistant because they're just needing more often, high, slightly higher doses of what they used to. Um, and I have had patients, I've got a multiple sclerosis. I've got a, a footballer who I used to do treating with his glabella. Now he's in um, got using toxin for um, tensor fasciolitis pain. There's um, a kid who had a road accident and is needed for chronic pain management. There are people who are crossing over in my practice from aesthetic into therapeutics and we have to and you just have to be aware of it yeah so i think unfortunately we can't measure antibodies within um australia we don't have a laboratory that does it it all has to be sent off overseas so you have to look to the therapeutic literature and it's certainly there yeah not wanting to get um too controversial or, or sort of complicated but in terms of the resistance i've heard from other friends of mine that are medical practitioners they've um, developed resistance after being sick after receiving um, a vaccine, potentially in sort of close proximity to Ooh, having treatment. Vaccines. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> vaccines in general, um, you know, or, or having a really bad case of the flu and they're getting over it. And if they've had treatment around that period, um, anecdotally, they're reporting that they have developed resistance around that time period. So had either of you heard sort of, you know, those kinds of, um, I guess, stories from people and, and what do you think about it? I think it's very credible. And okay. yes, I have heard it because you, you're in those, again, your immune system's primed. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's something to do with immune mimicry. So, you know, your proteins in your vaccine, the, the theory is that it, they can sort of mimic the neutralizing antibodies that are created when you have a toxin. So I don't yeah. know. I, I, I'll be honest. I've had one patient who actually is from Melbourne and he contacted me before I'd even seen him to say, I think I'm resistant but can I fly up to you and, and, and we basically do an elephant-sized dose of whatever and, and, and see what happens because I didn't have faith in the two or three injectors that I've seen. And we did it and he was truly resistant. So like you said, it's not easy to, to go down a pathway where you test these people for antibodies and, and, and really do it to the nth degree. And we're actually yep. going to do a podcast with Neve and Stefania Roberts just on resistance. I don't want to go to this in yep. too much detail, but essentially it's kind of like an awkward thing where you sort of put your hands up as the injector and say, well, maybe you are, but it, it's sort of hard yeah. to prove and you don't know when it started. It, it's That's the trouble. It's very hard. And you've actually said the classic thing is these patients move. Yes. So they've gone to you and you don't actually have all their doses and their pattern of injecting because, to be honest, every injector can vary. Yes. And sometimes it can be just your technique is different and it didn't work as well as the last guy. It didn't last. And it's not because the toxin, they were resistant to it. It's because you just didn't inject it as the same way yeah. as the previous person. Yeah. Um, so there's so many variables involved. And as I said, we don't have really good study in aesthetics, looking at a cohort of patients, following them through and doing their antibodies, which they have in therapeutics because they have to keep going back in to the hospital outpatients to get the drug and they need it. So they keep going back to the same place. So you're able to follow those patients and get good data. You just have to remember that the immune system doesn't differentiate from the indication, right? So you have to go to where we have the data, which is in these clinics. Yeah, and, and I know um, we're not in the, in, the, uh, in the business of giving advice on this podcast, but just, I guess, high-level thoughts based on the anecdotal evidence of people potentially coming resistant around those sorts of periods of sickness or vaccines. Would it be sensible? potentially to abstain from cosmetic treatments in and around those sorts of periods where you might be feeling really unwell or you might have just had a vaccine to sort of potentially circumvent this sort of resistance from happening? 
Um, yeah, I, my my experience is that when I've had those and it hasn't worked very well, um, you know, and you just think, oh, maybe they're a bit feverish or hot and bothered and maybe that it didn't sort of it spread a bit more. I don't know. There's so many things you don't know. Mm. But I, it's usually just that one episode when it hasn't worked as well. Mm-hmm. It's not an ongoing trigger, I don't think, for long-term resistance. That, yeah. that I, in my experience, I think you usually just it doesn't work as well in that time. I always think if you're giving biologics of anything, it's not a good time to be giving it when their immune system is primed. Yeah. I think you should wait. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I think COVID's been been great for sort of changing our mindset on these things because yeah. we're just not going to see someone who's not feeling right in our clinics anymore. We're going to hammer it home. You've got to wait at least two weeks until you're symptomless. Yeah. So, yeah, so maybe we'll. <laughs> see less resistance in the future now we're being a bit more mindful of vaccines and and other things um i want to talk about longevity because that's another thing that comes up i think you've already essentially said there's no difference but why do you think that those injectors who maybe you know tried xeomin or or they didn't have too much experience they anecdotally and and i think you've heard this as well david Mm -hmm. have said "Uh, it's just not it's just not you know lasting as long and is it a preparation or injecting technique issue or both I think there might be something else to it too. Ah, okay. <laughs> so I think um, one, yes, it's about, especially in foreheads, people get caught out. So they have to change the technique, I think, because it's 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 more precise. So you have to put, I said, more do- dots or spread it, but the overall dosage can be the same, mm-hmm. right? That's one thing. Secondly, I think it's that I, I believe there's um, a feel element to it. So you know that nerves, there are nerves that control motor mm-hmm. function. That's, you know, your nerve goes down and says, like, contract. And there's other nerves that take messages from your skin and from your muscles back to the brain, which we call proprioception. So it's an awareness of what. So if you've got your hand in the air, without looking at it, you know it's in the air. Mm-hmm. You know your foot's cocked up or it's flat or it's your knee's bent or whatever. You know that. And that's messages called proprioception that's going from there to your brain. There's been receptors for that that we've known about forever in joints and tendons and muscles specifically to give you that awareness, but we've never found them in the face. But recently a Spanish group did find them in the face, in the facial muscles. And I became aware of this very early in the piece because patients reporting to me, it's like naked tox, Botox. I'm going, what, what the hell do you mean by that? You know, they can't, they say it just feels lighter. Right. They don't have the stiffness. They don't have, not everybody, but they don't have the stiffness, the headaches, the lighter feel. And eventually got round to thought, right, I'm going to question, do a questionnaire on all my patients who've crossed over and see if they can say there was a difference in these symptoms. Now, it's just a sort of pilot study, but certainly there was a difference and they could detect the difference between the preparations. So roughly it was about 10% of DMN could pick up those afferents, those sensory symptoms. Um, 40% in disport and 78% in, or 70% in Botox, roughly. Okay. So there were difference in what they could pick up these symptoms and differential between them, between the preparations. So that could reflect the difference in manufacturing. And we do know that the botulinum toxins don't just work on the muscles, the muscle nerves. They actually work on other receptors. Um, we know it works in pain receptors. That's why it was so good in pain. We know and um, so fibroblastic growth receptors. There, there are different receptors it does work on, and we're evaluating this more and more and more. So I believe that part of it is that the sensation is different. So you know when you have, and 
I know you guys must have toxin. Oh yeah, of course yeah. we love it. Yeah, <laughs> David bathes in it. Yeah. yeah, and you know, you know when you get that feel that it's starting to work. Yep. All right, and it's not because you can't lift your eyebrows or you can't frown. You just get that feeling. You know, there's that sort of that's a proprioceptive sensation, and I think it's much less with ZMN than it is with the others. So when you probably lose that proprioceptive feeling and a different timing as well, because it's totally different pathways. And I think that is part of the thing that patients say it's starting to wear off. Because when you look at their photographs, right, and these are patients have converted. So you take the photographs of them moving before you inject them. And then when they say, I say eight weeks, they say, look, I don't think it's working as well, right? It's just starting to wear off a bit soon. But you take the photographs and you say, look, it's still working, not as effectively, but it's it hasn't worn off completely yet. So go and do buy some shoes or something with your money <laughs> and come back in a month's time and we'll look at it then. So, yeah, and I, so I, I, I wonder whether, so I was going to say, I wonder what whether what you're saying is another way of how I'm going to translate it. Because you said that it's more precise. It, it potentially doesn't, you know, uh, cover a bigger area as say disport anecdotally anyway. And so is that to do with, you know, are we saturating less motor end plates and therefore it feels different it's controlling the muscle in a slightly different way or different pattern i don't know because when you look at the motor photographs and you look at action which is something we can really easily document with photographs you know frown hmm. right you can see when somebody can't frown as well as they could so when you look at photographs they're equivalent totally equivalent but i right. think on the sensory side there's a difference okay interesting right. we'll have to look into that mm. so from from the patient perspective, um, having that conversation with someone that's never had ZMN before, let's say they're like a, a lifetime Botox or Dysport user, yeah. how does that conversation go? Because I'm sure a lot of practitioners are sitting listening to this going, well, that all sounds great, Nate, but, you know, patients become very fixated on a particular product. And obviously, you know, if a patient wants a particular product, then I'm assuming, you know, they'll get what they ask for. But I'm sure that there are people that would benefit or potentially would like to try a different product. But because Botox has done such a, a good job of establishing themselves as a market leader, especially from a marketing perspective, how do you convince people, or even convince, talk to people about the options and, I guess, make them feel brave enough to venture to a different product? Um, I think, well, it's a bit like, you know, if you go to your doctor and you get blood pressure tablets yep. and you've been on the same blood pressure tablets forever and then your doctor says, look, there's this new one and because of these reasons, I think this might be a, better, a bit better for you in your situation. They're yep. all good drugs. Yep. But, you know, it's it's a third or a fourth generation. Do you want to, do you want to try it? We'll see how we go. And, because you've been having these issues or you're at risk of having these issues. But I always say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if somebody's been perfectly happy and there's no reason, like if they've just been having their, their frown treated for donkey's years of no issues, why would you change them if, they, you know, if there's no issue? But if there are, you know, like if we're doing full face treatments or we're doing a hyperhidrosis, a high dose, and, you know, I'd say, well, look, there's, you know, there may be less chance of developing problems as you get older. So do you want to try it? See what it feels like. Or somebody who get, who's had that, didn't like that tightness mm -hmm. and they really hate it or the headache, they get prone to the headache after toxin. Then you can say, well, look, try it. It's lighter. It feels lighter. A lot of patients report it feels lighter. Try it. Yeah. So I'm assuming you have all products at your disposal in your cupboard and you choose what's right for that particular patient or I that indication. Yeah, and I did carry all the drugs for a long time. And in fact, I ended up with the patients who try Zeman preferring it, interestingly enough. Right, okay. Interesting. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Which is because I think because my cohort, patient cohort, are those that are looking for a very natural yep. look. 
And part of that feel thing, that proprioception, I think is part of it. I think that's a lot to do with the frozen thing is actually a proprioceptive rather than a motor issue is they can actually feel that frozen stiffness and removing that seems to um, make a big difference for them. Sure. Interesting. Now, just to go back to um, patterns and, and dilutions and concentrations, you mentioned that you hyperdilute for the forehead, which I actually do for, you know, my more mature patients where they want to look natural and not, and not feel too heavy or droppy like a flat screen tv they don't want to yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) um do you ever concentrate your zeomin more for particular areas or you know do you you ever do anything uh, for example what do you hyper dilute for when you're doing hyperhidrosis oh i do i i really so i'll use um eight mils in a vial for hyperhidrosis so i really really do hyper dilute that um, again, because there's enough evidence to suggest it's the it's the it's the actual units that count, yes. not so much the, the dilution. Um, the I I don't concentrate it any more um, than than two two mils, and even because a lot of patients in the glabella I treat just above the inner campus to the depressive supraciliae. Yeah. Um, because if you watch patients as they've been having tox for a long time their corrugator becomes very weak and atrophied and it doesn't do much, but actually they're still frowning using their corrugator's um, depressive supraciliary muscle, which yeah. is the one inside the corner of the eye. And you really don't, it's, because that's a high-risk injection, because if it spreads, they're going to have a squint. Yes. They are, they're going to look really weird. So you want it to be very precise. And I've never had a problem with it being in there. Okay. Because you did mention that um, if you get too close to the foramen, just above the brow, you can potentially get, you know, toxin yeah. sort of leaking through there and causing a, a yeah, ptosis. There's a, little, there's a little tunnel that yes. goes through into the eye socket and the, and it can go down that tunnel and affect the muscles. It's very rare it happens, but it can happen. C- can you pick that patient who's prone to that or not really? I don't inject that point. Okay. So you just stay away from it. End of. <laughs> I actually, so this again is where injectors are different. So I actually pass the needle up into the belly of the muscle. You know how you're always taught to just go straight through the skin at right angles, down, down? Oh, I don't, well, hopefully no one does that anymore. But yes, I have seen that taught. Yeah. So going up along, so I use a slightly longer needle, going up in the belly, along the belly. To sort of flatter to the skin. Yeah, and try and plonk it it where the motor end plates are, which is right in the middle of that muscle. I've never quite understood why you would go out to the insertion point to where where the muscle actually passes through through the other muscles into the skin because that's not where the action is. Yeah. That's the end That's the end bit of it. You want to do it where the actual nerves are doing their business. Yeah, so, absolutely. Uh, yeah. From a, a patient experience perspective, are there any other differences in terms of um, pain um, during the process at all? I mean, I've been speaking to a few people who use EM and saying that they, they're conscious, you know, as you sort of alluded to, in terms of injecting deeper into the belly of the muscle. But is there any other differences from a patient perspective that they would experience? I don't think so, really. Um, I think the pain, the biggest thing with pain is whether you use preserved saline or not, which, yep. again, is off-label. That's that, And what quality needles you're using, um, if you're using, you know, the best quality needles you can get, yep. the finer needle, and it doesn't scratch as much, so that makes it much less painless, painful. Yeah. What, what needles do you like to use? Um, now, I knew you were going to ask me this. So it's a 32-gauge, <laughs> and it's incorporated on a 0.3 of a mil syringe. So it's... Um, Purple tipped ones? Yeah, the FMS ones, yeah, I think. Purple. Yeah, FMS. Yep. Yeah, I'm a FMS, big fan of this. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they're great. Yeah, they're, they're making they're, a I lot think they're originally from Korea. I don't actually know what FMS stands for. I think it's Neither do I. fine micro syringe or something like that. I, but, I uh, don't know, but, you, but because it's only 0.3 of a mil in the syringe, you're more accurate yes. in your units anyway. Yeah. Yeah, there are injectors, particularly in the UK, I found who like still like the old fashioned one mil syringe. Yeah. yeah um, too, I, I, too, I, I can't. You know, I'm not saying I can't control it, but it is harder to gauge those little graduations in a in a bigger syringe. It's harder, easy to overshoot. It, it's, it's, yeah, and when we're injecting half a unit, you want it to be <laughs> you, you need yeah. that precision, and you can't with those one mil syringes. Not for me, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I guess if you did, you know, concentrate your your toxin more, it'd be easier to do. But yeah, yeah. And when it comes to preserved saline, I've heard. Lots of arguments back and forth. Some people that swear they can't tell the difference that it's the same. Um, and then we've got the questions around, you know, it's kind of off-label. So if you have like a complication or you get a resistance issue or someone that doesn't get the desired outcome, where do you guys stand as practitioners in using um, a preserved saline, which isn't, um, I think, well, I don't know, it seems like it hasn't been tested or it's not indicated to, to use that. So where, where do you sort of, sort of stand well, when you have those issues? Well, I actually went back to Mertz and asked them if they tested it in the laboratory. And they have. So it's actually, so we, we know from, from the laboratory data, which is not published, that it actually is fine to use it because you, you are, the reason it was no stingy because you're altering the pH slightly. Yeah. So it's, um, so I know it from that point of view, it doesn't affect, uh, doesn't weaken the efficacy of it. Um, I don't know about the other products. I haven't seen or I have access to the scientists to ask for that data but I'm sure they've tested and I'm sure it's okay. Otherwise it would be, everyone would be told not to use it by the companies. Yeah. Um, you have to be careful though, because it, it you can't get it. No, none of it, it's, it has to be made in a laboratory, mm. right. Or a pharmacy. Okay. So there's going to be variations and you have to be very careful about who's making it and how accurate it is and where's the data. This is the trouble with compounding. Again, like we inject, there's slight nuances, slight variations in, in all our techniques. So there's going to be differences in compounding and how efficient one compounding pharmacy's stuff is compared to another one. Um, and the big laboratory that was making it in Victorian in New South Wales now, it's they've just restarted again, but the rules around New South Wales and compounding have really, really tightened. Mm. So it's very hard to get it. Um, I researched where I could get it. We tried one company and they were bringing it in from the States and it was really dodgy. You looked at it and it was copies of labels and I went, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're not injecting that in anybody, right? So we managed to get it from an American pharmaceutical that's um, uh, it's got all the batch numbers, the lot numbers and everything else. But, you know, it seems to be as safe as we can get it. Yeah, just to guide any Australian injectors listening to this, there are some dodgy websites where they're Very offering dodgy. compounded um, saline and preserved saline, I think, for other uses. I won't I won't say what. It's not for toxins. Oh, oh like what? Like what? <laughs> <laughs> so um please don't be tempted to buy you know saline off some dodgy website it's got to be you know prescribed compounded through through an actual pharmacy and again a if you're, licensed pharmacy yes yeah. and if you're using a, a prescribing doctor they need to be aware of that and part of that yeah. so and you know we're not telling you to go and buy this stuff <laughs> no and sterility is a big issue and exactly you know what is in the vial you know, you've got to, it has to be a very reputable company that you go to. 
Yeah. Yeah. And luckily, our pharmacists are licensed or not licensed. Yeah. yeah. Having said that, it's bloody amazing. <laughs> and, it, yeah. and, it, and it's like injecting silk. Like you, you do a, just a control trial of half a face with old fashioned normal saline and, you know, normal uh, preserved saline. Your patient will kick you comparing the two. Yeah. It's oh. just like night and day. So it, it certainly is less painful. Yeah, no doubt about it. Because when when the pharmacy stopped making, the compounding pharmacy stopped doing it, um, we couldn't get it, and we had to go back to normal saline. And all the patients were complaining. Yeah, yeah. We've had a uh, one or two injectors on the podcast who you know very happily stock three, sometimes four toxins if they're in the states, and they'll sort of talk about tailoring treatments and one toxin being good for one thing and different parts of the face. I mean. I'm assuming you don't do that, but can you see any merit to that? Well, you know, I used to do it. I used to inject foreheads with um, with Dysport to get that increased spread, which I felt was there, yeah. and um, the rest of the face with Botox. Mm-hmm. So I used to do that a bit. Um, there's no evidence. There's no data, yeah. you know, that one's any different. And I think with dilutions, you can get the same results. Yeah. I mean, David's famous yeah. on this podcast with saying, if you're an artist, you need more than one paintbrush. So, yeah. you know, you, you become aware <laughs> of all the nuances and, you know, I know what I like and you know what you like. Yeah. So I think you just learn how to use something really well. Then, yeah. you know, I certainly don't need three or four toxins, but yeah, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. We'll have to ask Laurie when she comes up. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. No, I'm quite happy just to, you know, it's again, once you know a drug really, really well, it's a big advantage because you can, you can really get a good feel for it. Fantastic. Now we're coming to the end of the podcast, but have you got any golden tips for, you know, those newbie injectors who are just at the start of their journey and it could be anything, you know, how to avoid complications, uh, you know, managing, you know, tricky patients, how to avoid bruising, anything that, you know, you commonly see and you think, you know, if I just told you this, you would avoid it. I think with bruising, um, 5% tranexamic acid in Versabase um, compounded. Um, so, you know, you have your classic bruises and you, you sort of think, oh, my God, here we go again before you've even injected them. I'm going to send them out with a black eye again. We now give them that to go home and they put it on when they're leaving home or leaving work to come and get their injections. So it's, it's soaking in before they get here. And that has made a massive difference. Wow. To- I'm going to, I'm going to write that down. So it's, it's a, it's a lotion, is it? An ointment? You get it made in the compounding pharmacy. So tranexamic acid has been used for years to control really bad bleeding in surgery. Yes. Um, and it makes your platelets more sticky. So you're not using it orally, obviously, but we're using it topically. Um, it can also be used for a hyperpigmentation too. It's very good for that as well. But right. it's um, so 5% um, tranexamic acid in Versabase. And right. you put that on pre-injection? Yeah. How, how long before but for it to take uh, effect? Well, I mean, you know, I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. Again, you don't have a data. <laughs> sure, or, just anecdotal from your experience. It's anecdotal. We, yeah. we usually about 20 minutes, half an hour. Okay. Great. I love and, this podcast, always learning. Yeah, and, w- and what sort of incidence reduction do you, do you sort of see from it? Is it like sort of a, just a night and day difference between the bruising? Yeah. or it's, Okay, that's amazing. And when you do bruise, it's not as big. Yeah. Okay. That's different. So you just get, it reduces a great big black eye down to a small little... Right, it doesn't look yeah. like they've been in a domestic violence uh, sort of situation. Yeah, yeah exactly. answering difficult questions. <laughs> uh, yeah. And what's the sort of mode of action just from a, a from someone makes that- the platelets more sticky. So right. when you do put your needle through a little vein, and especially in an area where there's lots of veins, like around the eye, um, 
uh, it seals off much quicker. It doesn't leak as for as long, so the bruise is less. Excellent. Um, what about things like LED lights? Do you do you find there's any sort of utility in those sort of post injections where someone might have you might have given them a bit of a shiner, or you know, <laughs> you're getting a bruise that's popping up? Well, look, we have used um, laser. Um, mm-hmm. occasionally when we've had a problem. But um, now with tranexamic acid, it's, we haven't had such a big issue anymore. That's great. And I'm assuming you might use it for fillers as well, not just toxins, especially yeah. the lips and things like that. Okay, yeah. great. I'm really I'm really good normally at giving bruises, but it's <laughs> <laughs> one of my specialties. Um, but lips, we definitely put the tranexamic acid on for all lips beforehand, and that's made a big difference. I'm getting the impression that you weren't a huge fan of things like Arnica. It's too, it's too homeopathic for you. Not that I just don't think this. I don't think it made as dramatic a difference. We tried it. Yeah, I didn't think it made a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. I have okay. said, you know, you could give me sugar sweeties, and I probably wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> it, I, I don't know if, if patients like something, and I don't think, and there's not going to be a, a side effect. Why not? Why not try it? Yes, yeah, the main thing is not to do any harm. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what about aftercare advice, physiomen? Uh, you know, we, we sort of traditionally tell people a few things after toxins, but what do you tell your patients for a physiomen sort of uh, procedure? Um, I honestly, I just say, just take it easy. Just don't get hot and sweaty and hot and bothered for tonight. Because what you want to do is you want your um, toxin to stay where you've put it. So you don't want an increased blood flow, Mm -hmm. an increased muscle action, taking it and spreading it further than where you've put it. So I just say, take it easy. Apart from lying down, standing up, all that stuff, there's no evidence. And it's such a precise thing. I I don't think that's an issue. I think it's just just not to increase blood flow. That's the only thing I say. So is there any evidence for that as well? Because again, you know, we tell people don't exercise for, some people say four hours, some people say 24 hours, some 12. I I do understand the logic, you know, don't get hot and sweaty. My my interpretation is if you get hot and raise your core temperature, it might diffuse more and, you know, affect other muscles, but it's not going to sort of wash the the toxin out. My patients ask me that. (laughs) Is it going to wash it out if I sweat? No. Um, which you know, I no. don't believe, but um, yeah, I just yeah. sort of feel like we tell people stuff because, you know, maybe Gene Carruthers or someone else sort of decided that seems sensible. We haven't really challenged it ever since. Dogma. Again, I think that's no data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No data. It's, it's, uh, that's the trouble with this industry. Yeah. So much, so much BS going around yeah. and dogma. Yeah. You know, that needs to be challenged regularly. But what about rubbing the face, you know, sort of, you know, exfoliating straight after? Do you tell them to just avoid things like that? Oh, just take, just be gentle. You know, yeah. just take it easy. They'll be a bit sore and tender anyway, so they're not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the funny thing about common sense. Sometimes it's not that common. Well, yeah. Exactly. That's the problem. <laughs> They should rename it Uncommon Sense. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What about for women that are trying to have children, breastfeeding, pregnant? I know we always say no-go zone. Um, What are your thoughts on on that? My gut feeling is it probably doesn't cause any problems because we would have seen it by now, right? Given the number of Botox injections and um, botulinum toxin injections we're doing, um, we would have seen a problem or suspected it by now. However, you know what us ladies are like when you've had a kid and in pregnant and you're so twitchy about doing everything right if something could go wrong and then for that god forbid but if somebody does have a poor outcome right a child uh, uh, or a fetus with an, uh, a malformation or an abnormality the guilt that goes with that is massive you know every mother just thinks god was it that half of bloody something i took 
yeah. in, in my, you know, when I was in early pregnancy or whatever, or was it because I went out and partied and had a few drinks? So, you know, the guilt is incredible. So if we are advising not to, to give toxin because we have no evidence, we have no clinical trials that says it doesn't cause a problem, right? Um, I am keen to avoid that guilt. Like if they had, a, you know, lost the baby in pregnancy or, you know, it's it's always good to avoid that one particular thing being blamed because we don't have evidence otherwise. And that's what I say to my patients. I say, look, I don't have any evidence. Gut feeling is it probably doesn't cause any problem. But if you do have a problem, I don't want you to feel guilty. Yeah. I'm completely honest. Exactly what I tell, you know, people who ask that question. Um, I did read a paper where, of course, some women who may be in that situation need toxin for severe migraines or cervical dystonia or something else unusual, and and they haven't found any difference in you know malformations and things. So the inference is that there's no problem. Yeah. However, I, you know, I just wouldn't do it. Like you said, you know, women will, will will monitor everything that they eat, let alone inject into themselves. So why go down that territory for a non-urgent um, treatment? Exactly. So it's like everything we do in life, we weigh up risk and it's it's weighing up the risk for the situation you're in. You weigh up the risk of, of getting in your car every day, you know, from the amount of druggies and piss pots that are on the roads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, everything we do, you've got to weigh up why you're doing it, what are the benefits of doing it, or do you take that risk and how big a risk is it? So it's an individual thing. But yeah. I think for aesthetics, the threshold has to be extremely high. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Sensible advice. Well, on that happy note, I think we can wrap this up. But thank you so much, Neve. It's been really nice to yeah, connect absolutely. and see you properly. We will actually be getting you back for, uh, like I said, a special podcast on resistance with Stefania Roberts. So that will be coming at some point in the future. Um, we'll put all your contact details at the uh, bottom of our podcast description. So if people want to reach out, ask you further questions or sure. come and have a treatment, a Xeomin, whatever, yeah, or training. Um, they'll know how to get you. Yes. And I understand you do do sort of individual mentoring as well. I've seen that on your yeah, website. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. We do individual one-on-one training. Yeah, Fantastic. which is which I love doing because I think you really then you can hone on what their that particular injector's experience is, where their weaknesses are, um, and really guide them through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So for anyone that would uh, like to undertake some training, um, we'll put all your details down the bottom so they can reach out and make those inquiries. But thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure meeting you, and looking thank forward you. to having you back on soon. Okay, thanks, guys. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 